during our work on a Raqqa project for Amnesty, I remember this one time when we were investigating a photograph which had a part of a sign of what was a boutique for bridal dresses. The challenge was to geolocate the photograph in order to place it into the wider jigsaw puzzle of a Raqqa city that Amnesty was trying to reconstruct. Half of the words on the sign were burnt and the challenge was to reconstruct this photograph. We started, for, uh, we started searching for bridal boutiques in the city. We thought they could be advertised on social media. We came up with a list and we started matching our photograph to all the bridal boutiques results we found on social media. We did not find the boutique we were looking for. It was a long shot. We were frustrated until there was this found it moment when through the search we came across um, a photograph of a shop that sells children toys and the shop that had the location described on Facebook and in the corner of that photograph there was a bridal boutique. We were able to geolocate the photograph under investigation and paste it into you know, the picture of Amnesty's investigation. Social media has played an influential role in the revolution that made up the Syrian uprising. It was used to mobilize and document protests and human rights violations with unrivaled immediacy. The Digital Verification Unit at the University of Essex is part of the investigation led by Amnesty. What we did, we used social media as archives that lend ongoing power and testimony to past occurrences and kept them alive in the present. Amnesty's investigation of Raqqa preserves and documents the truth. It depicts the past violations of the US-led coalition military operation in Raqqa through the partial fragments of what was left of the city. When histories are contested or unevenly presented, Amnesty's investigation stands as a statement of the truth to empower all the victims of that attack and to call on for future accountability. You just heard Katia Al-Khatib, a senior researcher at the Essex Human Rights Center and deputy director of the Digital Verification Unit. You may recognize her experience from earlier episodes with Sam Dubberly, Maliki Brown, and Alexa Koenig, who spoke to us about the use of social media verification techniques for human rights advocacy. Today marks a major milestone in the space. It's April 25th, and Amnesty have just launched the results of an extensive multimedia and multi-year project documenting U.S.-led coalition harms on civilians in Raqqa, Syria, in 2017. In fact, you might even have been a part of it if you signed up to volunteer for the Amnesty Decoders project known as Strike Trackers. Declarations caught up with some of the minds behind the initiative in the week leading up to the launch. I had the pleasure of speaking with two truly inspirational figures at Amnesty International. The first, Donatella Rivera, who's a senior crisis advisor to Amnesty. I'm Donatella Rivera. I'm a senior crisis response advisor uh, in the crisis team. My job is to uh, deploy to conflict area, usually in acute conflict situation, to carry out 
field investigation into war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, and then to produce reports and video and the output on, on that and to lead on the advocacy strategy to bring about an end to those violations. And Milena Marin, Senior Advisor for Tactical Research. So I am Milena, I work uh, as a Senior Advisor for Tactical Research at Amnesty's Evidence Lab. We're based within the Crisis Response Program, so Donatella and I work together very often. Uh, what I do is help uh, researchers and work with researchers to incorporate non-traditional evidence in research. We triangulate and corroborate testimonies collected from the ground with satellite images and remote sensing. We use social media to find additional corroborating evidence. Um, and I also run the Amnesty Decoders program, which is a crowdsourcing program involving tens of thousands of people from around the world in analyzing and processing unprecedented large-scale data. So exactly how does that work, Milena? How do you get people to crowdsource that information? Amnesty Decoders uses uh, microtasking technology. So it's the process of taking a large task, such as a satellite image over a whole city or a whole country, and breaking, breaking it down into small pieces or microtasks and distributing those over the internet to many people. In this project, Strike Tracker looked at um, 11,000 buildings in Raqqa that were destroyed between June and October during the Battle or War of Raqqa. Um, and, but we needed to know with precision when they were destroyed so that we can bring that data together with testimonies, together with other social media evidence we found to bring cases of civilian casualties to, uh, to the coalition. So decoders helped us look through a timeline of satellite images. Uh, week by week, they were looking at the same building and they had to pinpoint the dates before and after a building was destroyed. So that really helped us narrow down the timeline from months to weeks and days when those buildings were damaged or destroyed. I mean, that's so fascinating, being able to crowdsource human rights work in such a profound way. And I'm wondering, Donatella, maybe in your work, how has Milena's digital input and the digital input of the strike trackers and the amnesty decoders uh, fed into your work on the ground and, and vice versa? How has your work on the ground sort of uh, fed into the work that, that Milena and uh, the digital activists, so to speak, are doing? Really, this is a multi-dimensional project and it's taken what for example, I've done before on a previous project of Raqqa, investigating in the field, uh, doing site investigations in, um, in a few cases. And in a situation where the coalition will eventually always admit, or mostly uh, admit when we bring very solid evidence, but also knowing that neither Amnesty International nor any other organization can do that kind of detailed work um, in all the cases. So with combined efforts whereby I carried out as many site in field investigations in Raqqa, which involves visiting the sites, doing the the BDA, the battle damage assessment, um, understanding what weapons were used, taking testimonies from survivors, from witnesses. And then we were thinking what we can do to scale it up so that we can replicate and, and really take that 
um, to to a, you know to much larger scale, and that's where the decoder and DVC programs came in, where the information from the ground is then complemented with you know satellite imagery doesn't live. Another way where the analysis of satellite imagery has been massively important in this project, and, and I think in many other um, conflict situation, is people, especially as they live through very traumatic events in the midst of war, and they're thinking about surviving from one moment to the next, remembering dates um, is particularly problematic. So we've had cases where people remember the minutest details of what happened. The building told me exactly what happened. It was quite clear that the building had been bombed, that certain types of munition had been used, either air-delivered or, or artillery. What was missing was the date. And that's where the um, evidence that came from the analysis of the satellite imagery is invaluable. And, and, uh, and so it's just the combination of those has, has been tremendous in being able to scale up the project. Yeah, and, and decoders and strike tracker work because we have all hands on deck. We are no longer limited to the abilities of our team and to really the human resources we have inside Amnesty and inside our team. And we can reach out to very large amounts of people. In Strike Tracker, we had over 3,000 people participating. They looked at over 2 million uh, chips of satellite images. Uh, that's really nothing that we could have done in-house. And so, so, so just to go back to what Donatelle said before, so this, is, this work essentially still starts very much on the ground. And then the extent to which you want to scale it then becomes uh, a matter for the for the decoders world and for the for the more digital world. The work doesn't necessarily start on the ground because there is then yet another component as well as the coder and and uh, and the um, work site investigations on the ground. We've also had another component which has been to examine all the social media reports that had come out during the Battle of Raqqa. Because of the restrictions that were imposed on people's ownership and use of mobile phones, for example, in Raqqa, um, there was much less than, than for other parts of Syria, but there was still a substantial amount. So the students that are part of the digital verification force within Amnesty examined um, hundreds, thousands of videos. Um, we, in partnership with Air Wars, um, looked at thousands and thousands of social media reports about incidents. So that's how the cases were initially reported in one way or another. It was either people posted messages on Facebook, condolences pages, uh, information went out on, on Twitter. And, and those were the first reports of the civilian casualties. And then the follow-up on the ground, uh, looking for those families, looking for those houses that had been bombed, and then the, the, um, the analyzing of the, of, the, of the satellite imagery. So what's the what's the objective with this larger project? You know, having gone from initially scoping out social media, then done the underground research, 
then with the decoders project feeding in with the strike tracker and now there is this output that you have coming up which includes air wars which includes an exhibition which includes virtual reality what's the what's the larger objective with this the larger objective ultimately is is really towards is accountability and justice justice and reparation for the victims accountability for the perpetrator the coalition has been has not been forthcoming has not come clean until now uh, for example prior to our previous report which was issued um, in june 2018 the coalition admitted to killing 23 civilians our report contained um, the findings of our investigation into uh, four cases which involved 77 uh, victims. And the coalition um, rubbished our report, said that Amnesty International does not understand warfare, uh, that our methodology is flawed and so on. That was on the day of publication. Within six weeks, they admitted to having caused all of those casualties. Um, and that's very important, but it also tells us that the co and we knew that already that the coalition will only admit when we do the work for them, the work that they should be doing in the same way as I've been going from bombed house to bombed house in Raqqa. That's their job. They bombed. Yeah. They should be there doing the investigation. Unfortunately, they haven't been doing that. However, when presented with very solid incontrovertible evidence they did admit but what they said was these are only very few isolated cases they are not representative of the military campaign what we have found out through our investigation on the ground is that that's not the case um, unfortunately uh, those were not isolated cases so the aim of this project is to be able to scale up the work so that the coalition will see a sufficiently large and representative samples of thorough investigation. And we hope that that will encourage them and push them to do the right thing and to, um, and to do the rest of the investigation, which is their job, and to admit responsibility for the other cases and to do the right thing by the victims. So what are the, some of the methodological grievances that they typically would come back to you for? And I guess that's not just for this project, but that might be in, in many other projects. What are some of the points in which you, you get told, oh, this isn't methodologically rigorous or, uh, you know, and, and what do you do to then mitigate that? Well, they haven't, I mean, apart from making those generalized um, sure. comments of, you know, oh, Amnesty International doesn't understand the realities of war, uh, which I would contend we do far more than them because people like myself and my colleagues spend time on the ground in war zone. They spend right. time, you know, up bombing from the sky and, and uh, don't really get to the ground. So they haven't, you know, made any specific comments. But what we've seen is that when other organizations have, because obviously we at Amnesty International are not the first to raise those cases with them. Uh, those cases have been on the desk of the coalition for a year and a half, 
um, so, you know, since the end of the uh, of the military operation in October 2017, and. The coalition has dismissed most of them on the grounds that either they consider the allegations to be not non-credible or they consider the information to be insufficient to carry out further investigation. Um, as I said, they should be um, carrying out investigation. There is a particular flaw with the methodology of the coalition because they do not carry out site visits and they do not interview victims or survivors. So um, we don't know exactly what their methodology is, but they themselves have said that they don't do um, these kind of investigations. So what we've seen is that it's only really when we provide a, a very, the findings of a very thorough investigation, which combines everything so what we brought to them uh, in the previous round when they admitted responsibility and what we aim to bring this time and what we will be bringing this time as well is the precise location with the GPS coordinates, the date of when it happened, the names of the victims, how many victims, how it happened. And, and those information are confirmed by obviously um, photographs, videos that we've been able to, to take while on the ground, but also crucially those satellite imagery that show, that corroborate in a way that cannot ever be disputed. Um, the, you know, the other information that we were able to, to gather on the ground. And Milena, for you, I mean, there's a big presentational element to this, which is really interesting. Like one thing is um, publishing a report or publishing a press statement and, and using that to, to apply pressure to a particular state or to the coalition in this case. Uh, but there's a huge presentational element which seems to be targeting the general public as well. And so I'm, I'm curious what, what your hopes are with that and what you're, what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really proud of this project because we've conceived it digital first. Um, usually the way we work at Amnesty is write reports for mostly advocacy targets. So we produce these heavy PDF reports. Um, and then we think about how can we purpose those reports for a larger public? How can we use them for digital audiences? Uh, what, while with this report, there won't, be, there won't be a PDF. This is a digital first publication. So we've, uh, we've conceived a multimedia platform that will take people through a variety of stories uh, that really illustrate the, the, the points that Anatara is making you know, about civilian, civilians being caught in the middle uh, and about entire buildings being destroyed and people dying, entire families decimated. Uh, we're using really interesting storytelling techniques such as um, 360 immersive experiences and showing the content on top of those uh, really interactive immersive experiences. We're um, using, of course, maps to show locations and to show the, the, the patterns, uh, the location patterns. We're going to visualize um, victims, all the named victims that we could possibly gather. We have at least um, a thousand people that will be that will be named and featured on the on the platform, so that we can really give them an honor, honor them, and really uh, have have their faces 
prominent on our on our platform. It's very, very data rich, the platform. It's going to include visualizations, um, the timeline of the battle, visualizations of um, the coalition's response um, throughout, uh, uh, you know, after the after the war and how they investigated or didn't investigate cases and how they claim um, most of the cases are um, hard to corroborate. Um, so yeah, we are really, really excited about this, you know, very dynamic, interactive platform with lots, lots of content and different ways to show the content. During our work on a Raqqa project for Amnesty, I remember this one time when we were investigating a photograph which had a part of a sign of what was a boutique for bridal dresses. The challenge was to geolocate the photograph in order to place it into the wider jigsaw puzzle of a Raqqa city that Amnesty was trying to reconstruct. Half of the words on the sign were burnt and the challenge was to reconstruct this photograph. We started for uh, we started searching for bridal boutiques in the city. We thought they could be advertised on social media. We came up with a list and we started matching our photograph to all the bridal boutiques results we found on social media. It was a long shot. We were frustrated until there was this found it moment when through the search we came across um, a photograph of a shop that sells children toys and the shop that had the location described on Facebook and in the corner of that photograph there was a bridal boutique. We were able to geolocate the photograph under investigation and paste it into you know the wider picture of Amnesty's investigation. Social media has played an influential role in the revolution that made up the Syrian uprising. It was used to mobilize and document protests and human rights violations with unrivaled immediacy. The Digital Verification Unit at the University of Essex is part of the investigation led by Amnesty. What we did, we used social media as archives that lend ongoing power and testimony to past occurrences and kept them alive in the present. Amnesty's investigation of Raqqa preserves and documents the truth. It depicts the past violations of the US-led coalition military operation in Raqqa through the partial fragments of what was left of the city. When histories are contested or unevenly presented, Amnesty's investigation stands as a statement. That's interesting. So it sounds to me like this is very much like some of the forensic architecture outputs, but on steroids like a very, very much in a similar vein of providing a, you know, 3D models and, and sort of a 360 view, but but you're, you're making it much more interactive and dynamic. Yeah, of course. I think, so we've worked, of course, in the past quite a lot with forensic architecture. I don't know that this project was necessarily inspired by that. I think it was really inspired by what was happening on the ground and by us thinking that we want to do something at scale and we don't want to keep illustrating a case here and there because we knew that the coalition will keep saying you know this is an isolated case instead we want to really show them that this is a pattern um, and that they are not doing enough to investigate and we're actually we do want people who visit our platform to take action we want them uh, to tell the coalition that they don't think this is okay so we're still a campaigning organization and our goal is not just to showcase evidence it's to bring about change 
is right. to get the coalition to admit responsibility, is to get reparation for 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 surviving families and so on. So there there's a little bit of a difference there. But of course we're using innovative tools and we had this digital first communication first approach to make sure we reach broader audiences and that we give them tools to to really understand those stories and be there with people who tell them on the ground. So this is quite important because of the role human rights organizations have historically played in being storytellers, right? The prime goal, I guess, of a human rights organization uh, in order for their advocacy efforts to be fruitful is to be storytellers and to elicit action and to mobilize voice. And so now I'm wondering if this is the next evolution in that storytelling, if we're looking at a move away from, say, 30-second videos or uh, petitions and towards the sort of a more immersive experience of storytelling. We have to. We have to look continuously for innovative ways to get our messages across. We cannot be complacent. Uh, we are a movement of 7 million people and we're not enough. We need many more to join our causes and we can do that if we can communicate to them in a very clear, concise way, in an immersive way to really put people in those places and create empathy. So we have to keep innovating and with every report, we can't just replicate what we've done before, but we have to think about new ways to, to tell those stories. We have to keep up with the technology and the opportunities that are out there. And it's really an exciting time for that. No, it's, uh, it's, it's also great to, to be at the forefront of, uh, of innovation. Does it ever As get frustrating right, that you've got all of this information, that you know the updated numbers of the civilians killed to be by so the coalition, that you have all of this verified evidence uh, and testimony just be able and satellite to say, imagery, like, here's the text. This is what, but what you need to go to through audience, this process of the presentational the elements and you struggle with the story, the storytelling elements, like, does it that you have to put in so much effort into almost you know, building this global or, or movement quite around your evidence, around the data collected, or is it actually quite exciting that you get to play around with the output in this way? It's, it's both. Uh, I mean, the, the frustration comes from the lack of political will, uh, really. Uh, the lack of the will to act, the lack of decency by those who... Um, by those who cause damage and are not willing to step up and 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 you know be there for the reparation. I I work um, pretty exclusively on armed conflict and I've done so for a couple of decades and it can be resumed in a sentence. You know, if there is money for the war, there should be money for the consequences of the war. And unfortunately, there is always money for the former and there is never money for the latter. Um, and of course, the fact that um, we have to constantly find new ways to try and drum up interest, um, to get more people engaged, because it's, it's all those people out there. The more people we can engage, the more people will put pressure and the greater the chance that we will achieve impact. But at the same time, it's also incredibly exciting to be able to, to convey um, the stories uh, of people who um, went through in incredible tragedies um, in a way that will engage more people, that will uh, grab more attention. And it's also very exciting to be able to corroborate in a way that we couldn't do 
uh, even just 10 years ago, I worked on a conflict where there was no satellite imagery available. And therefore, I couldn't at the time say, look, here is the incontrovertible proof that those houses were not bombed or destroyed before. Right, um, right. So, you know, there are challenges and there are opportunities. Obviously, in this particular project, it's been possible to go to Raqqa. Uh, I've been able to go many times and collect a lot of material from the ground. And, the, and that enables us to do certain things and in, in the visualization that we would not have been able to do if we had not had that access. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a challenge and it's, and it's a very exciting opportunity. Uh, so we, we kind of have to focus on the positive uh, of yes. what, what we're able to do. A project like this, Amnesty could not even have conceived it 10 years ago, for example. And so it, it's, uh, it's great that we can do that today. Absolutely. Come a long way from, from letter writing, I guess. On the letter writing, the decoder project mm -hmm. is a new way where, you know, in the same way as many years ago, people would sit in groups or sit at home and write letters. Decoder is a way to engage people that goes way beyond clicking on a petition. It's, it's the modern letter writing in a way. So to give us all a sense of what some of this will look like, I know there is an exhibition planned as well. I wonder if we can whet the appetites of our, of our audience by maybe uh, talking about some of the broad findings from the project so far. So we're... Um aiming to show different aspects of what happened in the, in the coalition military operation in Raqqa. And, and it kind of boils down to the rhetoric um, of the coalition and the reality on the ground. So, for example, military commanders of the US-led coalition said on different occasions that the focus was on protecting civilians and that they waged on this particular occasion, talking specifically about the Raqqa military campaign, that that was the most precise um, air campaign in history. Now, in one case, and this is just one example, um, a five-story building was completely destroyed um, in one of the airstrikes. There were four families sheltering in the basement and at least 32 people were killed. And that's where the rhetoric of precision is challenged because in this case, they did use precision weapons, but precision weapons alone don't protect civilians. If, the, if those who are dropping the bombs do not take the time and the care that is necessary to verify the targets, then, you know, if, if their intelligence is faulty, um, if the weapons malfunctions, all of those will determine what happens. And, and cases like this, where four entire families who were just sheltering, trying to be safe, were wiped out completely, these cases are not isolated. 
uh, and that's where the the rhetoric of precision weapons versus the reality on the ground, you know, hits home. Um, at the same time as claiming to to only launch precise strike, soldiers, uh, U.S. soldiers, Marines themselves boasted that they fired thirty thousand artillery shells into Raqqa in the four months, one week military campaign, and they boasted that this was the largest number of artillery shell they ever fired since the Vietnam War. Knowing that every single one of those artillery shell has a margin of error of more than 100 meters, in a city, in, a, in an urban environment, a difference of 10 meters can make the difference between a house full of civilians and the military target. Um, artillery is an area weapon, is a very cheap weapon, and that's why it gets used a lot, but it should never be used in a city. Uh, so it's, you know, it's those kind of um, being able to illustrate such cases with, um, with incontrovertible evidence and, uh, and not just one case. These are not isolated cases. These are very much... Uh, examples of wider patterns um, which the coalition has to come clean about. And Milena, if people want to contribute to this kind of work, uh, is the Strike Tracker program still ongoing or will it wrap up at the conclusion of the report being released? The, the project wrapped up actually um, back in January. So we had we managed to get all the data we needed in under two months. Uh, that's because we had a lot of people in, engaged and they were really keen to get it done. Um, but of course, people can sign up uh, on the Decoders website. It's decoders.amnesty.org. We keep advertising projects and we keep working. Now, of course, we worked on Raqqa, but in the past, we worked on online violence against women. We worked on, um, on Darfur. We worked on oil spills in the Niger Delta. So we have a variety of projects um, that, uh, that we work on. So. If people want to get engaged and are interested in really participating meaningfully in human rights work, they can register there and uh, and we let people know when we have a new project. And that's definitely a way to contribute. But I would say really the way to contribute for this work would be to visit the platform. The URL will be raka.amnesty.org and, and see the stories. I think the best way people can can contribute uh, right now is, is re read those stories and understand what people in Raqqa went through, understand how they didn't have any options, how they could not leave the city, um, and you know, understand their stories and then pressure the coalition to make justice for them. And again, going back to the visualization, um, people will be able to experience uh, Raqqa they will be able to go on journeys through the city. For example, at the exhibition that is opening in London, we have uh, an installation which involves people traveling through Raqqa um, with the GoPro footage, stopping at different points and um, exploring uh, stories of different families how they lived and died in the city through the war. So it will be very different than, you know, reading a few paragraphs. It, it's, um, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be much more engaging. And where can individuals go to see the exhibition? 
The exhibition is on in London at the uh, Architecture Associations, uh, which is in Bedford Square, just behind the British Museum in central London. And it will run from the 25th of April until the 30th of May. So before we wrap up, I wanted to just dial in on some of the ethical implications. So of course, this is a very sensitive context. We're dealing with um, vulnerable populations and potentially compromising material. And so I'm wondering about some of the ethical considerations with regards to what media to include, with regards to consent, and how that was all done. One of the reasons why there are very, very few testimonies on video is precisely because we would only ever we will only ever record things with people's agreement. So in Raqqa, like in many other places, um, when you know people are living in, in the same environment, they haven't come away from that environment. There is fear and all sort of uh, reasons why people don't want to go on camera. So um, that's another reason why this very innovative and you know diverse, multidimensional visualization uh, has helped to to tell the story in a way that it wouldn't have been possible just with straightforward video interviews because most people don't want to do that. But, I mean, all the information that we make public is um, with consent. Mm, yes, but this is, this is interestingly a way of shifting power, as you say, rather than putting the onus on the individual to have perfect knowledge and have perfect memory and give their testimony in a verifiable way, you're actually saying, no, look, there are all these other sources that can help us establish that and put the onus away from the victims themselves. And this is also a project that is, um, we very much hope, something that will be um, of use to the people of Raqqa. It will be, the platform will be available in Arabic and, it, and there is a, uh, an option for people to contact us if they want to give additional information on a particular case that we've illustrated or different information if they want to inform us of other cases that are not featured on the platform so sure. that it can be a part, as participatory as people who have been affected in Raqqa would wish it to be. The option is there. So it was one of the first time I worked um, on such a project. I worked on human rights for a long time, but this was the first time I worked in conflict and uh, around the conflict and really looking at civilian casualties. For sure. me, it was an incredibly humbling experience to document the names of the ones who were killed. And I think, I think we're paying tribute to them by showing who they were and they are not just a number um, and they are not just a pattern that we have to convince the coalition to, to take action on, but they are, they are people, they had families, they had relationships, they were living in, in harmony and their lives were completely devastated. And of course, many of them lost their lives. So for me, it's really a way to pay tribute to these people and bring them to the front of the conversation without them being numbers. Be sure to check out the exhibition and check out the website and sign up for alerts on Amnesty Decoders to see how you can get involved. Donatella and Milena, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Declarations. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Just a reminder that the interactive website can be found at raqqa.amnesty.org. That's R-A-Q-Q-A dot Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this special episode of Declarations. 
We're on all your favorite podcast providers, so do check us out for the next episode. Also, we are on social media, so drop us a message or send us a tweet at DeclarationPod on Twitter or DeclarationPodcast on Facebook. Oh, we have also got a new website up for those of you who haven't been able to check us out yet. That's DeclarationPod.com, where you'll be able to find show notes, that's uh, comments and links to articles and literature that's been discussed on most of our episodes. I'm Matt Mamoudi, and this is Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. <laughs>